1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're starting at actually verse 17. But as we start, discussion question over here. What is it like when you have family over for dinner? Some of you now have family living at your house now. That. Uh, <laughs> he's, not, he's over for dinner. He's over he's, dinner. He's, he's living with the boys. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair, fair. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful time. The sisters help with, uh, mm-hmm. sister-in-laws yep. help with all kinds of fixing and dishes. That's and, good. Oh, it's wonderful working in the kitchen with them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is fun. family meal is like that. Yeah. Not everyone. <laughs> and that's, that's the thing. Sometimes right. they're great. Yeah. But man, gosh, we had my sister over, gosh, we still live in Chicago, but over for pizza. Mm-hmm. one time and it's just funny how you fall back into some of those sibling roles yep. you know it doesn't matter where you are or what time it is or what you're eating or if mom and dad are there and it's just like ah oh. yep i won't go any further into it <laughs> let's, just say, let's just say not always the best of times right, right? Yeah. like you're saying but sometimes and but my nephew was there and it was a huge blessing to eat dinner with my nephew yeah. so cool so you get a mix sometimes it's good sometimes it's you know drama drama <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh, yeah. More than you want. <laughs> <laughs> you want any? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Anybody else? Is it usually drama around the table sometimes? or? Yeah, I, I would have to say that no. I mean, the drama is the exception. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. really the rule unless your dysfunctional family... Mm-hmm. Tries mm-hmm. to throw no a curveball. <laughs> it was more how, dis- how to move out of their dis- dysfunction. Right. Isn't it funny? <laughs> it's uh, them, I, not us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, it wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> I found it sometimes more dysfunctional when I was a, uh, a teenager with an older sister and younger sister. Uh-huh. Since you kind of have it more often. Mm-hmm. But now as you get together as adults, no one wants it to be dysfunctional. Uh-huh. Doesn't mean it doesn't. But, boy, howdy. Sometimes I'm like, ah, I'm just not going to talk about that. Ah, I'm just not going to make a comment on what right. you just said. Yeah. I'm just going to let that fly. We'll yeah. just move on with our lives. Yeah? Not important enough to default. <laughs> <laughs> I say that to you because as we get started here in um, chapter 11 and we're talking about communion, right? Gathering around the Lord's table. You think there's a little bit of dysfunction in the family here in Corinth? Oh, yeah. If we, if we haven't talked about it enough, that's yeah. certainly true, right? Paul writes this letter for one of two reasons. Number one being, there's division among you, right? Yeah. Divisiveness. And then the second one is, here's all the answers to the other questions you, you've written to me before. In this section, when he's talking about communion, he addressed head coverings in the first half of this chapter. I won't get into that. We'll get to that later. But that was a question that they had. And now he's talking about the division again. Because he's talking about the division that's happening around the Lord's Supper. Let's go ahead and let's get started. Um, Verse 17 through 22. Can someone read 17 through 22 for me? While I snack. (laughs) In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show... Which of you have God's approval? That's sarcasm, by the way. (laughs) 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 When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Is that 21? Oh, 21. One more verse. Uh, Mm -hmm. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? 
or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Thank you. So as we start, we're going to unpack a little bit of what mealtime was like in a Greco-Roman society here. It really starts to help you get a realization of what Paul's really discussing. Breakfast during those times was often like just a piece of bread with uh, a little bit of wine in the morning. They would soak a piece of bread in wine and they would eat it. And that was breakfast. You'd be on with your day. Your lunch was oftentimes in like the town square, wherever you worked, whether you bought something on the street or like, like today where you pack your own lunch. They would do the same thing. It's amazing how times don't change all that much in certain ways. And then the last one, their final meal, which we call supper or dinner. I don't, what, supper here, right? Uh, you know, it depends where you came from. Well, I never called it supper until I moved here, and my wife calls it supper. I always mm-hmm. called it dinner. So yeah. depends on the family. Our mm-hmm. family calls yeah. it dinner. Dinner? Okay. Yeah, a lot of times the dinner is actually the noon meal, yeah. and then supper is the last one. Yep, yep. So that's kind of the depending on you know where you come oh, from. Yep. Dinner there and supper not. Yeah, exactly. When was lunch? Yep. <laughs> That's dinner. <laughs> oh, grab something quick with lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Eleven Z's. Eleven Z's. Yeah. One second breakfast, right? If you're a hobbit. Right. Yeah. But they have the evening meal here, and this is where it says in Greek, right? The the daphnon over here. The evening meal is what it was called, and we'll, we'll I'll go to all those other things at another time. But the evening meal that they had together, their supper, unlike being on the go. They were in their first meals. They made this one very important because in ancient times, in particular, there's no TV. You don't really go to the movies. Yeah, there were some like live performances, but um, the social hour was very important to one's own circle in life. In fact, when you read through the Gospels, oftentimes we don't realize how much Jesus is saving somebody by by allowing them to be part of a society again. When you look at the, you know the. The man, you know, he heals the paralyzed man and the man with the paralyzed hand or heals the lepers. A lot of that, yeah, sure, it saves their life because leprosy can lead to death, so can paralysis, things like that. But what we don't realize is how much restoring them to society was was the livelihood then. And what it really meant, people wouldn't, you know, lepers, people wouldn't talk to you. The man who was paralyzed was laying on the streets begging all day and couldn't go into these big suppers or these dinner houses or into someone's home for dinner. He's just stuck on the side of the road. And, and a lot of life happened around this particular meal. So within not just like Jewish culture and Hebrew culture, which happened, you know, even in Exodus, we read this time and time again, but also in just the culture of that time. So that social hour with dinner, people, they, they ate to satisfy their hunger, of course, but they also gathered for hours together to hang out, to chat, and, you know, think of it like high school, who are you sitting at the lunch table with? kind of thing. You wanted to be seen with certain people at dinner. You know, oh, well, I had dinner with this person last night. And that doesn't mean, like, you got together and had a gyro at Tom's or something. It, what it means is you spent a meaningful, substantial amount of time with somebody and got to know them and engaged in conversation with them and built a relationship. So that's what this is about. Now, there was the Lord's Supper, right, which he's talking about here, and he'll talk about and address in the next verse. But oftentimes before that, there was what was called the the agape meal, which is a nice way, the way we say it. It was often called the love feast, which makes you kind of go, Ugh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go to the love feast. <laughs> but think of the Greek word love being agape, right? That meal of, that has sacrifice with it that kind of led up to, that was the social hour that led to the Lord's Supper, which is instituted and then, you know, the bread and the wine going on there. 
So Paul's talking about both the Lord's Supper and this love feast, right? And this is the earliest version of like a potluck. Everybody would bring something to the meal, and they often happened at like a rich person's house or a wealthier member of the church because they had a larger house. They had like an atrium and a dining room, so it could accommodate everybody. But thank you, if you've ever been to a potluck, I love potlucks, by the way. And everyone brings a potluck, and sometimes there's someone who made like that, you know, grandma's casserole that's really good, and everybody wants a bite of grandma's casserole, right? So the, the rich folk were getting together, and they had grandma's casserole, and they had wine. But then the, the, the lesser means, right, the poor people that were part of the church are like the college kid that brings a bag of chips to the potluck. Mm. And everyone goes, oh, you, know, you only brought <laughs> chips. You, why, why do you get to have any of Grandma's casserole when I spent hours on this and you just went to Fred Meyer and bought a, bought a discount bag of chips, you know, Kroger chips even, <laughs> your name brand. And they're like, well, this is what we can do. This is all that we have. So the, the richer part of the church was then instead saying, well, you guys eat in that room over there, in the atrium. We'll eat in the dining room with the other highfalutin Christians now, right? The other upper echelon. And we'll eat this food. And you'll see what he reads. Uh, says, oh, right over here. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. For an eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, right? There are some people that are getting together having their own meal. They're purposely dividing the church, saying, this is the group that will be here. We're going to eat this food that we brought and drink our wine. And you guys can just all snack on the chips. That if that's all you can afford, that's all you get to have. So you can see where <laughs> you're not going into the Lord's Supper from this agape meal in a very good state, are you? So Paul's already talking about there's a major division between what's going on before you even show up. Oh, I say all that. So then Paul writes this, what? Do you not have houses to eat in or to drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So let's identify a little bit of what's going on over here. What is the church? Believers. The body of believers, right? People that are gathered together that, that believe in Christ. So we got the body of Christ is the church. A union of people who are believers. How does what they're doing despise this church? So again, what is the church? It's the body of Christ, which is a people unified, uh, gathered as believers. How does what they're doing despise the church? Because they're not considering the they're only there about their own mm -hmm. personal status. They, they, they are not just about status. They are purposefully dividing, saying that this body of Christ has a lesser half or a lesser part, that maybe they could do the Lord's Supper with us, but we're being gluttonous and eating and drinking beforehand. They can't really be part of us. They really can't be a body with us because we won't actually unite together for even just this love meal or love feast, the agape meal. Therefore, how is this contradictory to the gospel? Yeah, that goes against everything Christ stood for. Yeah, such as? Love one well, another. The, the love one another as I have loved you. Right. Yeah? Well, and the, you know, uh, dealing with the, uh, the poor, the homeless, the, you know, um, Absolutely. Dealings with the poor and the homeless caring for one another. To whom much has been given, much is expected, right? More words from Christ. You consider Epiphany today. The star is the one that reaches out to the Gentiles, right? That are not part of the group, not part of the chosen people of Israel, but reaches out even to the Far East and draws people to him. We have from the earliest beginnings Christ bringing in the Gentiles and showing that he's going to do so, right? And it's, it comes to a point... <clears throat> where Paul's in his ministry saying, hey, I've gone to the people of Israel first. Now, 
I'm going to the Gentiles. You know, you guys, I'm, I kick the dust from my shoes, my sandals, and I'll leave here and I'll go and minister to those who need to hear the message. Right? A lot of what Paul's doing is he's connecting how Christ was bringing in all these Gentiles, people that were separate from the body and now part of the body. And now what are they doing again? They're separating the body, and it's in a different part, right? No longer is it Jews and Greeks. That, that's united, but now it's the rich and the poor, and we're going to separate it there, right? When in the same sense, it's about bringing all people into the body. So when you read that again, um, I, have, I have one section I want to talk about with that. Let me see here. Oh, it'll be at the end. So we'll get to that. We'll get to that at the end. But let's look at the words of institution here. I'll read these. Verse 23. So Paul brings up the words of institution, which he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <clears throat> so, uh, as we talk about the sacrament here, because we'll talk, we'll, this all ties in in the last section that Paul's going to talk about. How do we define, how do we as Lutherans define a sacrament? Right, if anyone remembers, maybe, uh, I don't know, first communion class? <laughs> what, there, I think There's, it's like a fundamental... Uh, kind of like a ritual that, that Christians do. There's only a couple of them. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're right there. Baptism there's only and communion, right? So there's two, maybe three, depending on who you're talking to, uh, right? Compared to oftentimes you hear this word sacrament, <clears throat> and you'll get what the Catholic word Catholic for sacrament means. They have seven, I think, yeah. right? And some sacraments are like marriage yeah. and mm -hmm. um, uh, confession, absolution, and private confession, which actually we kind of agree with. So as a Lutheran, here, here's all the, if you go through the large catechism, right, here are all the, the prerequisites to have a sacrament. One, it's commanded by Christ. Two, God promises his presence and his presence of the like, gifts of forgiveness and grace, right? So forgiveness and grace and his presence are associated with it, commanded by God. Number three, there's a physical element. So consider the two major sacraments we all agree on as Lutherans are the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Baptism. Exactly. What's the physical element? We have bread and wine over here. In this one we have the water. Do we have the promise of forgiveness of sins in both? Yes. Does God promise his presence in both? Yes. Does God command both? Yes. We have a sacrament. Right? Philip Melanchthon and some other kind of offshoot Lutherans will say we have one more. And that's confession absolution. Is there the forgiveness of sins? Yes. Does God promise his presence to be there with you? Yes. Is there a physical element? If you talk to a priest. If there's a, if there's a pastor there talking to you, right? Personal confession and absolution, is that person the physical element? Some people could say yes. Some people are like, well, I'm not consuming that. And there's always a person involved in all of them. It's not, you know, so it's tricky, right? You, you won't get yelled at if you say there's three, and people, most people will tell you there are two, right? That's what I'm here to tell you, and now it's recorded, so everyone else knows what I think. Um, 
But keep that in mind. So there's kind of three, but there's definitely two. So we have here the sacrament, God's presence, and the forgiveness of sins. So as we go through, are the sacraments a public or private act and why? They're kind of both, I think, because mm -hmm. they're... They're private in that it's between you and God, mm -hmm. but it's public in that, you know, we do that among the church people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, uh, it kind of feels like it's both. You have the winning answer. Oh, right? <laughs> And that's it. It's a bit of both, right? It's like you can't think it's just one or the other. It's, it's, uh, oh, oh. I don't want to get in trouble for saying this, but I will say it. It's so oftentimes when I say, like, you know, like private baptisms, I'm like, you're being baptized into a church. A major body of people, if you want to consider the Christian church proper, like 2.6 billion people, yeah. right? Yeah. If you want to consider Grace Lutheran, you know, we're about 1,000, right? It's like you're being baptized into a family, and a group of people that, that are here to care for you, and being baptized and becoming part of a body. Now, let's refer back. What did Paul say before about what the church was? The body of Christ. And what is the body of Christ? People. Ah, people, exactly. Now you're getting the idea. He's saying you can't be unified as the, as the church, which is the body of Christ. And then say these sacraments can be private, meaning you can separate and like you guys can have your communion and, and we'll do ours. Yeah. You can't do that because you're despising the body, right? Mm -hmm. Why is Paul bringing up the words of institution now? Again, there are two reasons he's writing this letter. The first one being? The division. The division. This, these words that Christ is saying here in communion is meant to bring people together. Right? Does he do this one-on-one -on -one with Peter in a room alone? No. No. And not only are there like the 12 apostles, right, that we get in like Leonardo <clears throat> da Vinci's portrait, we, we expect and suspect there were more people up there in that upper room. You know, it's like, this was a very public act. Like, and it was meant to unite people together. That's why Christ instituted it. And now you're using it for some other nefarious purpose to separate people. Is where he's going with there. Do I have anything else to say about that? Probably. No, I won't go with that. All right, because you can unpack, and it would be, it's a whole different Bible class to just unpack this one section of what the words of institution mean. You know, if you've ever, have you done our Seder meal here before? All right, we did that last year for, yeah. um, for Lent. This year we're doing something different, but like every other year they do that. If you haven't done it, it's really neat because then you get an idea of what happened in the upper room, what that Passover meal like when Jesus said, I'm taking this Passover meal and I'm applying it to me and I'm, I'm applying it to you. Mm -hmm. so it's cool to get a sense of, of how it all comes together. So let me recommend you doing that if you've never done it. <coughs> but we'll move on over here. It's, on, it's online also. So Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you want to watch it. So what was the second reason? Because uh, I've been coming and going. So the first reason Paul's right now is the division. What's the second? Second one, here's the answer to all the questions you've asked me. Okay. Yep, so we, so we suspect that they wrote a letter, Paul wrote one back, and they wrote another letter. We actually suspect that even though this is the first Corinthians and then there's second Corinthians, that first Corinthians is probably the fourth letter exchanged between the, the two of them. So he's writing in reply to a letter they wrote to him. Okay. And he first addresses, there's division amongst you, and this is my one, the primary reason I'm writing to you. My second reason is you've asked me a bunch of questions. So you might think it's weird that he's talking about divisions and teachings and stuff in chapter 1, then all of a sudden in the beginning of chapter 11 he's talking about head coverings. It's like, why is this 
letter feel so eclectic? And it kind of is, because it's a little all over the place, because like, here's the main thing, and now here's answers to the questions that you have okay. as you go through. And, yeah? and it, obviously, the Lord's meal wasn't a little piece of bread and a little thing of wine. It was, it must have been, was it... Like the Seder meal? Oh, like the practice, the practice of the Lord's Supper at that time? Yeah, you was know. there more <coughs> bread for some people and more, less? Was there some lamb? Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd have to, <laughs> there's some <laughs> lamb. Well, the love feast is different than the Lord's Supper, right? right? So there's a love feast that happened beforehand, which was more of a potluck. It was kind of whatever you brought, because you have to imagine, especially in Corneth, this is majority Gentile society. There weren't even, you have to have 10 Jews to make a synagogue. There weren't even enough Jews in Corinth to have a synagogue. Mm. So this is primarily a Gentile population he's addressing in this. So they don't really have that practice of, of you know, the Seder meal. Um, what was the Lord's Supper like at that time? Uh, I'd have to do a little more research to give you a, a clear answer. Um, but it's bread and wine. You know what's funny? If you Google communion... And you look at the pictures, I guarantee you the wafers that we eat for communion today were not the, f the bread that they were having, no. you know, back then. And there are a lot of reasons why we use the bread that we have today. I'm not, I'm not trying to poo-poo on it. What I am saying is throughout time, you can see it's evolved. I've been part of Luth LCMS Lutheran churches in the Midwest where we had a loaf of bread. And you tore pieces off of a loaf of bread. And that's what you had as part of communion. Right? And it wasn't unleavened. I know. But I still think it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the first typical breakfast was bread dipped in bread wine. Bread dipped in wine, yep. Then maybe they didn't see communion as being that different. Uh, in, in a lot of senses, yes, but in the same sense, the words of institution make it different. Right. And that's why Paul is again mentioning it here. From their point of view, though. Yeah. Because we do it every morning. We're probably whatever bread and wine they had that morning, they'd probably have very similar bread and wine then. So, you know. so basically, they're probably having this agape meal and then they just do a ceremony. Yeah. During the agape meal, and it's the, but, the, but it's the agape meal where the stratification comes in. So yeah, we've got all these meats and this. Yeah, we got expensive stuff. Yeah, and so you would fill up there, and that's what he even addresses at the beginning of that section. Do you have houses in which you could eat it? Right. Right. So don't do the agape meal with your church when you could just stay home and have dinner, and then come and join them for the Lord's supper if that's what you're going to do. But you're purposefully doing it there amongst people to divide the church. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's funny, it wasn't until medieval times or the Middle Ages that people started going up for a second round of communion because of, like, uh, starvation and famine at the time. Oh, and wow. they, that's wow. when, like, the common church practice became, you can only come up <laughs> once, right? Wow. Because people were, were dying, and so they'd get back in line for communion to have more bread and wine, whatever they could get. It's kind of a neat thing. Amazing, yeah. That's... We continue over here at 27 through 32. Can someone read 27 through 32 for me? I'll read. Thank you, Deb. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Is that? Yeah, that's it right there. So 
is something to keep in mind, again, when you take these words in context. Because you read the, this section in particular out of context all the time. And uh, it's... I'm not telling you there's only one way to interpret communion. What I am telling you is within the context of Paul's letter, he is addressing something specific. And yes, this section can be applied to many other faith areas of life, so don't take this as, this is the only way, and the only way we could talk about communion. There are many ways, and there, it's, it's literally, as you heard in the announcements, it's a five-week course that not only we take fifth graders through, but if Pastor Dinger or I take people through like, hey, we want to participate in communion, well, they become <coughs> baptized and instructed members. And we do that because I want you to be instructed because I want you to realize what this gift means. And part of it is what Paul's talking about here. So there's a part he's talking about. So let's unpack this. What is the unworthy manner that Paul's talking about in verse 27? In context with the, in the letter and what we've read so far. <coughs> they are, you know, they're, they're uh, into this division of one another. Yes. And their, their whole drink, it, it's... It's not commemorating mm -hmm. Christ's sacrifice. Which was meant to do what? Forgive us from our sins and? Unify. Unify us to bring us together, so, to unite right. people under Christ. So the unworthy manner is you are purposefully dividing people and are purposely coming in a place where you are not unified. And this is an unworthy manner in which to participate in this sacrament. <coughs> So it's kind of one of those moments where it's like, what's the unworthy manner? Is it like a matter of self-consideration and repentance? And those are all important things. That's not the thing Paul's talking about right now. Right? right? So that it's, it's a two-headed part, right? You eat and drink in an unworthy manner, meaning you're not honoring what the, what the actual elements were meant to do. Right? The forgiveness of your sins, the grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, right, for us. Again, we go back to the Lutheran identification of sacraments. The forgiveness of sins. And then what he's talking about specifically in this letter, to unite us together. And he's like, you have no intention of being united together in the practices that you're doing already. Does that make sense? Right? So that's the unworthy man he's talking about in that. Um, so what does it mean to examine yourself in the context of what Paul's addressing in 23 through 26? So if you look at that, one really, this is where I wanted to bring this up. Let me find it, let me find it. So taking the Lord's Supper and then going to verse, sorry, let me find it here. So for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's do this game again. What is the body? The church. The church, which is the body of Christ. Right? So all of a sudden you eat and drink without discerning the body. Is it necessarily the bread? Yes and no. I mean, yes and no, exactly. His, 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 the bread represents his body, but it is his body. Yes. Just as the wine represents his blood, but it is the blood. Now, now take it one step deeper, right? So we have his body, which Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, right? So you are partaking of the body when Paul says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, is he just talking about the piece of bread? Or is he talking about the union of the believers in which you're participating with? Yeah, I, I would say yeah, it has the to do with Absolutely, the union. So you have to realize it's part of both. One of my favorite parts of how we do baptism here 
is we do faith, family, and forgiveness, right? Those three that are listed. And when we have family, it says, realize you're being baptized into something. You're being baptized into a body, not just the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a body of believers. When you're baptized, it, it, uh, without getting too crazy about it, you know, talking with Jonathan about how we baptize, we don't do necessarily a drive-by baptism where it's like, I'm coming into town and I was hoping to get baptized this Sunday, but I live in Oregon. It's like, okay, like, if you have maybe family background here, maybe, but we're more so, we want you to get baptized at a church that you're going to belong to because you're baptized into a body of believers. And as you're baptized into a body of believers, you're baptized into the body of Christ. So when you participate in that baptism, we say yes as a family to you. Not just you thinking you're saying yes to God, however you want to reciprocate that, you know, and change the phrasing of that to make it theologically correct. You know, God leads us to him and then we're baptized. God says yes to us and some people say baptism is us saying yes back to God. But at the same time, the body of believers that you're baptized into are saying yes to you. Yes, we, you're a part of our body. Yes, we will support you. Yes, we will be with you. I love hearing that when we do baptism. But if that's one sacrament... And now we have the other sacrament. Do you think it's any different? I, I so, don't see how it would be. It's not. That's the thing. You are communing, and like you're communing with a body of believers. There are people that are going up there with you. As Christ has said yes to you, and we give you this, you receive it kind of as that saying yes to Christ, right? Receiving that forgiveness amongst a railing of a body of believers. And we say, I love it you know, when we say um, the communion of saints, meaning communion of saints being all those who have gone before us, all that are yet to come, and all those that are present here. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that Lutheran communion is the only communion out there. Right? The way that we do it. And that's not what I mean. It's not the only altar. Well, you have, well, <laughs> well consider it in like stages. There's like the, the all Christian believers. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not saying that's bad. Then there's the LCMS in general. You go out of town. You go to grandma's church. Can you have communion there? Sure. Right? Yeah. Why not? Right? Is that the main drive and focus behind the practice? So you go to grandma's church once a year and you have communion. Yeah. Not necessarily. Yeah. What is the main drive Paul's getting at? Mm-hmm. You're communing unified with a body of believers mm-hmm. that you're with. That you're with every day. Or, or at this point every day. If I see you guys like once a week or sometimes a couple times a week. Right? You're meant there to support each other. You're there together as a family. Mm-hmm. That's why my first question was, what's, what's dinner like around your family table? Because that's what this is. It's dinner around the family table. You know, but do you have Uncle Ed that comes to dinner and no one wants to sit with Uncle Ed so you, you guys all eat before Uncle Ed gets there? <laughs> thinking of uh, uh, no, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> yeah. Is that yeah. Uncle Ed? I can't remember his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uncle Eddie, yeah. that's it. Uncle Eddie. Yeah, yeah. No, one yeah. Wants to, no one wants to be seen with Uncle Eddie. Yeah. Uh, Cousin Eddie, yeah. Cousin Eddie, there you are. Yeah. Cousin Eddie, yeah. Are you purposely... <laughs> Dividing the church that way, when in fact it's like, hey man, Cousin Eddie's part of the family, right? right? Let's bring him into the fold. When we commune, we commune united as a body of believers, as a body of Christ. As we receive his gifts, we're unified together as Christ unifies us to him. But we're unified in what Christ says about it, not what each individual does. Yes. So there's people who come mm-hmm. and say, well, I can take communion at a different denomination because I don't believe... I." Be- I don't believe yeah. the same, and that's not what the context of communion is. You need to, if you're yep. taking communion in a local place and they believe something different than you believe, that would not be a point. The point of communion, I mean, in our word, communion yep. is union. We need to 
believe the same thing. You you are spot on. So then it's Absolutely. great to go to grandma's house yep. and go, yes, there are people in other parts of this country, mm -hmm. other parts of our family who believe the same thing. But if I go to grandma's house and they believe something different, mm -hmm. there are people that we have trouble with that because maybe I don't want to put a hole in the family because you didn't go up with yep. so you somebody who is a little different branch and that's that becomes an so issue. You're saying something very important, right? And this is where um, sometimes so I'm hundred percent with you. Because when Eddie's we, gonna distort. Well when we say this <laughs> when we say and do so what, what Ross is saying is perfect and I would keep mm -hmm. it exactly as that. There are people that'll take what Ross says and say it poorly. And that becomes what we call Ivory Tower syndrome. Meaning, well you're not are you L C M S Lutheran? <laughs> Oh, you're LCMS, you're not LCMS, you're Wisconsin Lutheran Synod. You can't commune with us. That's true. Huh? That is really true. So, they will not allow you to commune. Yeah. Well, so Wisconsin won't allow you. Yep, right. they won't allow you. Right. Why? Beca and it's, it's for, in the positive sense, right? But they, yeah, I don't know. That's in the, <laughs> that's in like, oftentimes they'll do that, and it's in a negative way as I close this off. People it's in a negative way and a mean way. Yeah. Compared to, I'm trying to, protect you in particular because I want you to commune with the body of believers that believe the same thing you do, right? Oftentimes when people are coming for an adult baptism, I say to them, as, as you come here and you're, you're coming for an adult baptism, you want to baptize your child, you realize when we say yes to you, I want you, you know, I want you to come to church a few times before that baptism happens. We kind of, it's not a requirement, it's a strong encouragement to come at least three times because I want you to feel like you believe the same things we believe. So when you say yes, I, you know, I will raise my child in the faith. You know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's not some dictionary definition that you pulled up about what faith is. It's what we teach and believe as doctrine here in the Lutheran Church. Mm -hmm. It's not anti-Christian by any means, and we certainly have fellowship with many other Christian churches, sure, but we want you to be in union with us compared to, of course, yeah, we baptized your, your eight-year-old son, but now you say we can't baptize your newborn infant. Well, we believe, <laughs> teach, and confess here that infant baptism is a very good thing. And it's God doing the work and not you. But now all of a sudden you disagree. Right? You're no longer in union with us in our doctrine and what we teach. Right? And that's what Paul's getting at here. Right? We, uh, the phrase I have is commune in unity in community. Meaning you want to commune in unity with those around you, just like Ross said. But if you go to, I, when I said grandma's church, I, I very poorly in my head had an automatic assumption it was another LCMS church. Okay. Right? But you're 100% you're right. If I go to grandma's church where I was raised and it's another LCMS church, can I commune? Yes. Yeah. Why not? But the pastor may approach me yeah. and, and he's, he's, he's a new guy. He's been there 19 months. I don't know who that would be. And, <laughs> and says, hey, you're new. Um, before you commune, I'd like to talk with you. And you go, excuse me. I was born in this church. This has never happened to me before, you can tell. Uh, I was born in this church. I've been a member here for 40 years. And I'm like, well, I've been here two years and I've never seen you. And I just want to make sure you're okay. Yeah. I'm just checking in on you. That, that's about it. But in, in the same sense, you want to make sure when, when we commune as, as a body, like he said, like Paul, Paul, bleh, Paul's here, Ross is there, and Paul's right here too, um, <laughs> that you're in union, what we believe, teach, and confess all together. Because all of a sudden it can become a point of consternation. And that's why Paul's saying, some of you are getting sick. 
Some of you are getting sick. Some of you, he says, even dying. And part of that is you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. Right. Dying spiritually more, right? Huh? Dying spiritually more than dying physically. I, I that's how I would put it, but I couldn't tell you offhand. I mean, consider Ananias and Sapphira, right? They get, they, yeah. They, he's like, hey, yeah, we sold the land, but we kept a cup for ourselves. Bam! Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. This is the early church, and God's trying to be very clear in the early church of how practices need to move forward. So, could be. Either one. Uh, is the purpose for discipline a bad thing? Is discipline supposed to be bad? No, because no, God disciplines us. It may feel bad. Mm -hmm. It may feel more so unpleasant. But the purpose of discipline is never bad. My footnote says in the Lutheran Study Bible, uh, could um, the same food that should have strengthened their faith instead caused physical Harm. Physical that's harm. What, that's yep. What they, mm -hmm. But then it says physical punishment follows spiritual problems. Absolutely. Yep. So both. Both physical and. Yeah. Both. Yep. I would. I would probably go with both. Because consider your son who's not here, Dylan. Right? right. When you disciplined him as a child, was it for him to feel bad? No. No. It was often to what? To to correct him. To, to correct him. To turn you, to turn you away from the bad things that you're doing, to correct your behavior so it's no longer bad. Therefore, as God disciplines His people, which you know, I won't tell you the moments in which I feel like God has disciplined me. I will tell you I have felt moments where I, I'm like, the Lord is disciplining me because I did something bad, and it's, that's not always how it works, right? Do not take that as 100% theologically correct. That bad things happen because I did something bad. But I will tell you this: that God seeks to discipline us. To keep us on a correct path, right. to keep us in, in, a, in a, you know, walking His path in a righteous way. I feel like when I've strayed from the path and done the things I've wanted to, I've I've felt things in my life that felt more like discipline to get me back on mm -hmm. the path the Lord has intended for me. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you when those are. I can't tell you every single time when it happened. I can't tell you that the one thing you're going through in life right now is God disciplining you, and you need to get right with God. Does that sound like a terrible sermon? It does. it does, right? <laughs> exactly, because it would be. <laughs> but you, but Paul is, you know, that point. It's funny. What do they say? Stereotypes usually come from like a, a certain source, and stereotyping is a bad practice, right? But there's the sense here of we have that stereotype of, uh, you know, you must be doing something wrong because things are going wrong in your life. It must be God disciplining you because you did something bad to get you right with the Lord. You sound like Job's yeah, friends. Yep, yep. It's, it's, his, it sounds like Job's friends. Which is bad, right? <laughs> yes. Which is yes. bad. But there is a sense that God, like he is here in Corinthians, does have a discipline practice to help curb you, right? We say the law does three things. First thing we say, the first thing the law does is curb your behavior. And then a mirror, right? So you can see yourself and that sin. Yep, and then, of course, the last one's to guide you. Right? Curb, right? Curb bad human behavior, right? Do not kill. That curbs our behavior. We, we don't kill because it's a command, typically. Right? A mirror. Wow, I didn't realize how the law is reflecting upon me the things that I'm doing and how I am indeed um, deserving of punishment. Right? And that's where Christ saves me, right? He saves me from that reflection. And then the third thing is uh, what we say for the Christian is a guide. It's meant to help guide your life, to help you be on that path. So that's, that's the last thing I think I have. Mm -hmm. Consider it again, are the sac oh, okay. Consider it again, are the sacraments a public or private matter? Mm -hmm. 
And in which area is Paul calling for correction? Well, it's public, and he's, called, he does, and he's saying it should be public. Well, it is. It, it should be together. It should be together. Public it's a public together, thing. It's not yep. separate. Exactly. Se separate's private. Because the, the answer, again, is both. You need a private correction because you're taking it in an unworthy manner because you don't even understand why Christ gave his very own body and blood. Mm -hmm. That's why he mentions it again. Right. Realize why Christ gave his very own body and blood. To realize it's to unite you, so it's a public act, but there's a private confession that needs to happen there to realize you've been not just misinterpreting it, you knew what it meant and you went against it anyway. Right? That's more typical. And that's more, ty <laughs> that's more typical, which then causes, which, which then is a call for discipline. Yeah. Right? I think that's all I had. I didn't read the last part. Sorry. Uh, I'll read the last part. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. Right? If you want to have a party and hang out with your friends, have a party and hang out with your friends. Don't ostracize other people in order to do it. If you want to have a party, Paul says, just eat at home. <laughs> don't, don't make it a scene when it's supposed to be a scene that's supposed to be unified. Well, and I like the part where he says, wait for one another. Wait for one another, yeah. What's the hurry anyway? Yep. You know? It's it's part of the trouble of like trying to, oh, I'm I'm late. Uh, but it's part of the trouble of keeping service to like we gotta be an hour, an hour fifteen. And then sometimes you feel like you're a book in it at communion. Yeah. And Paul's saying, Hey man, wait for one another. Realize this is just it's it's a wonderful time of a pub like a public confession of worship that we are united together and Christ unites us together through what he says. And we are united to him by his very own body and blood because it was a gift from him to us. Take a second, and if you're coming to 11, take a second as we have communion today. If you didn't hit it at 8 o'clock or 8.30 today, we have, it, we have communion for the first time at 5 o'clock today, right? Take the time. Realize we are communing in unity as a community. It's even like the word. That's why it's a cool thing to say. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your word and the correction Paul gives the Corinthian church, because, Lord, we need it too. Um, it's great to see as the law curbs and, and reflects to us our behavior, it also seeks to guide us. And Lord, this participation, this great gift of grace that you've given to us, we ask you to help unite us together. Unite us as a body of Christ, as a, a group of people that are unified by your teaching and by what you say and by your words, so that when we come to the altar united, we are also united with you and your great gifts. Thank you for this experience and thank you for your teaching. And to all the glory, let it be yours. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. Amen.